This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. So we'd like to um, give the audience an option or a uh, request that you um, ask questions of the, um, both of the speakers. I think what I'll do while people are thinking of questions, I'll ask um, one question which has always um, made me curious. The classic indications for uh, surgical intervention on the aortic valve, uh, we still rely on adult data. We still rely on the ACC guidelines, uh, which is, the, I think, the, the average age for those patients is well into their 60s. Um, and there's very, very little data in 40-year-olds, in much less under that. Um, what about quality of life as an indicator? Um, how much does the presence of severe AI uh, impede the quality of life of young patients? Um, do we restrict their activity? Uh, how, how do we generally approach uh, the management of patients while we think that there's no classic indications, but is there, is there an in-between? Are, are we keeping kids who should be pretty active in their, you know, in their teen years, are we keeping them uh, in a sedentary life uh, because of this? Thank you, Pedro. I, I think that uh, I alluded to that a little bit when I uh, talked about the uh, life expectancy and how long uh, pediatric patients, how many decades of life they have ahead of them. Um, I'm not aware about data about quality of life, but uh, I can tell you that um, there is no scientific evidence in the literature that justifies uh, restrictions from uh, activities. Uh, the, uh, this and this can lead uh, this can lead to not only reduction in quality of life but potentially for um, ill health from uh, having those patients not being engaged in an active um, healthy uh, lifestyle so I think that we as, PD, as cardiologists and surgeons needs to uh, take these considerations into account when we think about our, pa our pediatric patients with uh, aortic regurgitation in terms of how long do we uh, delay or kick the ball down the, down, down the road. Yes, please. In our institution, we've been starting to use uh, PTFE, a reconstruction of the pulmonary valve. Um, I've had difficulty with other places where we put pericardium of becoming calcified or uh, aneurysmal or um, something else. I was wondering if you had any thoughts about the use of pericardium for the long haul and if you uh, would consider PTFE. Interesting uh, question. In fact, it's something I think I brought up to Pedro about a week ago, the use of PTFE. Somebody was visiting, visiting us, and I think um, there are concerns that the, the long-term use of PTFE will be um, just as have been seen in the pulmonary position. And, and um, so we don't have any experience using PTFE, and I, I don't think we're too optimistic about it. I think 
Uh, with regards to pericardium, there are a number of questions we have about it in terms, and it, uh, it ranges from the timing of gluteraldehyde fixation, the use of gluteraldehyde fixation, if any at all. Uh, we have certainly shortened the amount of time we uh, fixate the autologous pericardium with gluteraldehyde, so it's in the couple of minute range now. Um, I think there are other options. We've used um, Photofix. Uh, pericardium, which at least in the early results of um, other studies, show less calcification. So uh, we're concerned about it. I don't think we have any solid answers yet. Um, I think it's important to take away from Ozaki's experience. Most of his is more than 85%, I think, is autologous pericardium in older patients, including those with renal failure. They haven't had a lot of reoperations for calcified aortic stenosis. So I don't know, Pedro, if you have anything to add, but I... I oh, no, I think you've answered it. I think we're going to alternate the three microphones. Uh, Vijay? Yeah. I enjoyed your presentations. Nice clarity in your video. The thing is, how do you measure the length and breadth of the, you know, your each leaflets? And you said fixing a commissure is a critical step in your entire operation. Do you give some technical tips? Or yeah. Yeah, unfortunately, measuring the annulus was cut out of the, cut out of the video when we, but um, there's a sizer there that uh, specifically when you stretch the root, and let's just take a typical three leaf that the three commissural valve, the sizer you put from commissure to commissure. So that is the way you measure it, at least in uh, Professor Ozaki's uh, initial uh, experience. I also think we can make the measurement on echocardiogram preoperatively, and we've done that, and we're actually going to try to correlate that uh, just by measuring the diameter of the aortic root. Okay. Um, so to answer your first question, the sizer from commissure to commissure, and you, you stretch out the root. So um, that's how you uh, make the measurement. Then commissure, how do you, you said that's a critical step in the entire operation, so do you yeah. have any technical tips? Yeah, I think the, the critical step is just getting the, the maneuver down. And the second to last stitch, and maybe we can go over it offline, but the second to last stitch, you take a deep bite. Because when you take a deep bite, it everts the commissure in, it brings it together, uh, and it allows better coaptation. So there are a couple of important technical details about it. Thank you. I would like to come back to the history of the indication and maybe a comment about uh, the left ventricular function because we are extrapolating data from primary aortic regurgitation, but this disease is quite rare in children. Most of these patients were born with aortic stenosis, so the ventricle is something different from a electrical irritability and maybe stiffness, and uh, some of those patients couldn't end up uh, even with pulmonary hypertension. So you have a long history, long experience about uh, treatment of those patients. I would like that you comment a little bit this point. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Uh, this is, uh, our patients are, uh, while we do see some patients with primary aortic regurgitation, uh, many of our patients have either mixed aortic valve disease and um, associated um, anomalies mostly of the left side of the heart. So uh, your point is very well taken. Um, diastolic function is a, is a major issue uh, in these patients. And in fact, in some patients, uh, it's uh, uh, the deciding factor in terms of referral for uh, surgery in order to 
take away the volume load and move them along the uh, pressure volume uh, curve. So uh, these are all relevant and important um, observations that highlight how much are uh, the how big is the challenge in terms of deciding when to uh, do surgery in a child with aortic valve disease? AK? A question for both of you. Uh, have you explored different fixative solutions for pericardium other than glutaraldehyde? Because two years, we haven't seen calcification, but downstream, that's going to happen in these growing children. So are you exploring the possibility of using other fixative solutions that may not encourage calcification as much with glutaraldehyde? Um, I'll have you answer that and then yeah. just... Well, for, I mean, photofix fixation doesn't use glutaraldehyde. It uses um, uh, light fixation. So we are using other types of pericardium that don't use glutaraldehyde. Um, and the question is, do we even need any glutaraldehyde? So just use unfixed autologous pericardium. And there are some uh, European data out there that suggest aortic valve repair with unfixed pericardium is probably as good as uh, fixed pericardium. So we are trying to compare those. And in, in our early experience, there's no difference, but it's too early to tell. And my question to Tal is, uh, the adaptive response to chronic ventricular volume overload in children, newborns, infants, older children, is probably different from adults. Uh, substantially, and we just see they seem to tolerate volume overload much more easily. You've got other models, you know, moderate VSTs that exist for a long time, big ventricles, Z-scores are in the same range, and they seem to do quite well. We don't understand this entity really well, isn't it? No, we don't understand it, although I would, I would just um, perhaps suggest a word of caution, and um, it used to be um, a, an assumption in our fields that patients that have small to moderate VSDs uh, but no, um, no pulmonary hypertension can tolerate that quite well and they dilate. And if you look at uh, Welton Gersony's uh, data from Colombia that followed a cohort of such patients over a long time, uh, they ended up uh, faring not so well. So it's again, it's true, and I would uh, agree with everybody, anybody who says that this, uh, that extrapolating from adults to children in uh, aortic valve disease is uh, not the right thing to do. It's just that it's the best data that we currently have. Uh, the situation in children is clearly much more complex, including the pathophysiology. Uh, but nonetheless, um, I am not convinced that, uh, that this is an innocent um, circumstance, even when uh, children seem to be asymptomatic and quote-unquote do okay. We struggle a great deal with these symptomless patients with uh, regurgitation and it's, you were very clear about the, the criteria that you think we use are very much based on echocardiographic dimension and ventricular ejection fraction. But we look at reversal of flow in the aorta. Um, we look at the color uh, images of how wide, how deep the flare of regurgitation is. 
and um, and and whether it's eccentric or central or not. We look at MRI, looking at regurgitant fractions of aortic regurgitation. But do you think all these are we should put to one side? Do you think we should stick to really clear echocardiographic criteria? Often it's very difficult not to be influenced by these other things. Uh, not nece not necessarily. Um, I think that in some. Uh, that has to be tailored to the individual patients, and there are some patients in whom uh, ECHO just uh, does an excellent job and you get all the information that you need. Uh, and uh, I will not repeat all of the uh, advantages of uh, echocardiography. However, when the data is not as clear, when there's discrepancy between study to st echocardiographic study to study, or between the clinical data and echocardiographic data, between ECG and echo, and, and so on. When there's, the data is not as clear, we would often use MRI as an arbiter, especially when there is a question of surgical intervention. What about catheterization? I mean, I, I you know, the role of catheterization in these patients I think isn't always clear. And, and there is a subset that has a relatively big defect in the valve, small regurgitant volume, but in great part due to a very non-compliant left ventricle. And these are the patients that I think uh, Lorenzo pointed out are born with severe or critical aortic stenosis and have that persist for a while and then later develop aortic regurgitation. When do you cath these patients? So. Uh well, even the adults struggle with it, so let alone uh, in children. Uh, and I think that we actually have a relatively low threshold to catheterize patients when the clinical pro when the clinical data and the imaging data is uh, not absolutely consistent, or when we are concerned about um, non-compliance and, and high LVDP. Um, the question then becomes. What do we do with that data, and how does it affect our management? And that's the, the answer to that is not clear, uh, at least not in my mind. But nonetheless, I think that uh, because the decision to intervene is not in, is is consequential, uh, we try to get as much data as possible. And hemodynamic data by catheterization is sometimes necessary and helpful. Our institution is involved with. Uh, European multicentric clinical trial with a decelerized homograft. And uh, 86 or 87 homograft have already been implanted. So what's your opinion as to do this other alternative as compared to Ozaki procedure or, or something else? That's in the aortic position. Aortic position, yes. So, I mean, in our institution, we use very few uh, Aortic homographs, so we limit that. But really, decelerize. I'm talking about completely right. treated, decelerize it, then implanted. Right. Yeah. So in general, we use very few aortic homographs in the aortic position to start with. So our experience is is pretty limited. I guess what you're trying to get is the calcification um, potential, and theoretically, it should be less. Um, I think that there there are two ways you can implant a decelerized homograft as part of a Ross operation and put the homograft in the pulmonary position. And I think there, there's no question that having decellularized reduces the antigenicity. 
putting the homograft decellularized in the aortic position, however, I think there's pretty good evidence that de the decellularization process, all the detergents that go into getting rid of the glycosaminoglycans, reduces the, the, the strength, the integral strength of that homograft, of the wall, of the leaflet wall. And so how they will hold up under systemic pressures, I think is a still a question mark. So I think there is a need for a study, and that's being conducted. So I'd be very curious about that data. But personally, I would worry about using a decellularized homograph in a systemic uh, AV valve. Well, we'll see. You know, the, yeah. the, the trial just started, and yep. uh, you know, Hanover, the University of Hanover is the primary investigator. There are six centers around Europe, and we'll see how it goes. You know, yep. but I just wanted to know your opinion, but you seem to be a little bit skeptical about it. In, in the systemic position. I think yeah. the pulmonary, I think it's yeah. unquestionably yeah. a good idea. Thank you. One brief question. Sorry. Go ahead. Just three weeks ago in Ottawa, it was a landmark meeting about the valve repair. Professor Ozaki was not there, but one of your colleagues presented an amazing experience with uh, autologous pericardium in a similar type of repair without a template with 10-year follow-up, extremely good results. And he also uh, presented experimental data that um, um, autologous pericardium uh, holding uh, ice bath remains viable. Have you used um, autologous pericardium that is ice cold? I mean, not treated with glue. Not treated. Right, yeah. Yeah, we've used, um, we don't have a head-to-head -head comparison. I don't think we have long-term data, but we have used uh, non-treated pericardium. I think early on in the experience, before the Ozaki experience, and I think we have a publication out there on the technique of using three-leaflet extension with pericardium in much the same way you're describing. And I think the difference is, is with the Ozaki technique, it's important to remove all of the leaflet and the base of the leaflet. When you just use the extensions and, and don't use the template, the base of the leaflet tends to not move as well. So what I suspect will happen is, and we've seen those fail uh, relatively soon. Um, so. Thank you. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.